What is going on? Welcome to the Land Podcast this week. We have an episode with CJ Garrett, and CJ reached out to me here pretty recently, and really privileged to share his story. CJ has a lot of real estate experience over the years and has bought parcels and have uh, created them into development. His end goal is to own a section. So a section is 640 acres a square mile, and that is his goal. So there's some really uh, great information in this for someone that is looking to buy their first piece of ground. He shares what he would do if he had to start over and some things to really keep in mind as you're looking to buy a parcel. And beyond that too, the the Land Podcast has been great. I've had um, the ability to connect with so many fantastic people, and I don't take that for granted whatsoever. Um, I want to say we're we're probably getting pretty dang close to helping 50 people buy their first farm, which is amazing. I did not think that we would get there as fast as what we're doing. And the other thing is, too, like CJ has a really interesting story. I'm not going to spoil it. Um, you guys have to listen towards the end, but I hope this episode inspires someone in some form or fashion. If this is the first time you're ever tuning in, the goal of this podcast is to help 100 people buy their first piece of ground. There's three ways to be included in that. Number one, if you're in the state of Illinois and you're looking at an area that I'm uh, an expert in, I'm happy to help you as a buyer's agent. Typically doesn't cost you a darn thing that's paid by the sellers. Number two, if you want to connect with someone that I would personally do business with in this country that I know, that I trust, I would be happy to make an introduction. And if I don't know anyone there, I'm not just going to Google a name or make a phone call for you. You can do that. So I'll just say, I don't know anyone there. And number three is if you just simply learn something from this podcast that makes you take action with more confidence and knowledge, then we achieved it. Let me know, send me an email and I want to add you to the spreadsheet. So I hope you guys enjoy it. I hope you guys have a great week and a great season because it is now officially October. CJ, welcome to Land Podcast. How's it going? Good, man. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we've connected here pretty quickly and uh, we're able to line up our schedules to record an episode here today. And uh, you have a lot going on. And I think um, this is going to be a really interesting conversation in in two forms, uh, your experience in real estate and also some other things you have going on in your life that uh, really excited to at least provide awareness and hopefully inspire a couple of folks. But before we get into all of that, uh, take a chance to introduce yourself, where you're from, and, and who you are. Sure. So I'm CJ Garrett. I uh, live in Northeast Kansas. Um, I'm a real estate broker and developer and home builder. Um, diehard bow hunter. And yeah, I love I love to hunt. I love my family and, and I love real estate. So it was easy How, connection for us. How'd you get into real estate? Um, so funny question. So I actually had a corporate job when I was young at a college and uh, and I worked really hard to kind of climb the corporate ladder, if you will. And uh, at, at you know, 21, 22 years old, I kind of hit a crossroads where I realized that um, it was a good living, wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do forever. Um, and ultimately, truthfully, I kind of ran into a situation where they kind of capped my pay based on my age. Um, and that discouraged me a little bit. And I had a great mentor who was a, a real estate broker here locally. And, uh, man, I was at, a, at an event and sat down and had a conversation with him. And he was just like, look, you're, you're young, you're ambitious. You don't have anything to lose. You're a great communicator, good, personable person. He said, why don't, why don't you just take a stab at real estate? And I was like, man, I don't know about that. I don't know anything, you know, um, long story short, just one thing led to another. And, and, uh, I decided to make the jump. So January 10th, 2010 was my first day as a, as a real estate agent. Interesting. Uh, well, I mean, obviously the market was probably a little bit cool then or no, or were you guys still doing a lot of deals then? I was so ignorant to real estate in the, in the real estate market that I tell people this, when I walked in to KCRER to register for my MLS fees and all my MLS dues, everybody else walking out, I didn't know it at the time, but they all looked like they'd been about beaten to death and they were all going in there to turn their license, you know, to, to put their license on referral or to just suspend their dues. And I didn't know I was, early twenties, I was going to be a real estate agent, you know? <laughs> and man, the first year I about starved to death. Um, it was so hard. And then, uh, from probably 2010 to 2012, it was really difficult, really difficult times. Market was tough. Um, we did a lot of fix flip type stuff and uh, that's really what, what made it through honestly. Was, um, was buying some of those, uh, soft market deals and, and fixing them, making them better and selling them. Yeah, there was a lot of distressed properties at the time. There's a lot of REOs that were hitting the market. And uh, we realized that if you could buy the deal right and, you know, ultimately people, if they had money, they were going to buy the best house in the neighborhood they wanted to be in. So we were just trying to put that product together for them. 
Mm-hmm. Interesting. We did it. Not very many. Not as many as we wanted to, but enough to survive. That's uh, sometimes that's uh, what's most important. Do you think it was an advantage to go in kind of blind and and everyone else is probably a little bit burnt out or uh, sick of getting their butt kicked? Where you're going in, you're like, man, I'm ready to go with enthusiasm. Maybe looking back, maybe. Um, I tell people I'm like a hunter and gatherer by nature. That's you know my personality type. So I didn't get discouraged how hard it was because I didn't know anyways. Right. So I just thought that was real estate. I didn't know any different. Um, what's funny is now you fast forward 10 or 12 years and you look at relatively new agents that are in the market now and they're going, man, this is tough. And I just look at them. I'm like, you have no idea what tough is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's interesting. So uh, you started in 2010 yep. and uh, we talked previously, but it was sounded like you were more in residential at that time as is a residential listing and buyer's agent. Yep. Yeah, so I did a lot of buyer-seller, just representation stuff, the whole fix and flip type deal. Um, really, I was always passionate about land, but you know, being in real estate was, was a means to freedom so that I could hunt. I never really correlated that together. Um, and then actually when my son was born, Grant, who we'll talk about later, um, that, that changed things for me because the demand was kind of picking up. That was 2015. Um, I had built a bigger clientele. Um, you know, the calls that were incoming were, were more abundant than 2010, that's for sure, which was a blessing, but it, it almost got to be where it was hard to be at home and being a young dad for the first time with my wife who was young. I mean, there was a lot of new going on and it was very, very hard to manage all that. So I took a brief hiatus, went back to a corporate job thinking I needed stability. That didn't last. That's not <laughs> who I am. I dove right back into it. Interesting. Well, I think that's a, that's a fair point because I think a lot of folks from the outside looking in are like, oh man, being a real estate agent is awesome. You have a flexible schedule. Well, yeah, kind of, but most weekends and nights gone. And like, when are, when are they available weekends and uh, nights? And so that's something that is a pretty big misconception in my opinion. Yeah. And, and that's a huge misconception because people think that you just work during the day and do what you want on the weekends and evenings. Um, and really, if you look at real estate as a whole and everything that goes into it and everything that's required to keep your pipeline full and to really build a book of business, all the way from making connections, events, cold calling, everything that, that really you need to do to be successful. Well, you're not going to cold call somebody at two o'clock on a Tuesday because they're going to be working, right? So like your calls have to happen after hours, which more times than not, people don't want to talk to you after hours, right? So that's its own obstacle. So everything to start out is kind of in those evenings and weekend type positions. Yeah, for sure. And so you were in corporate America and then you said, okay, this isn't for me. And then, so did you transition back into real estate on a different strategy or, or what was that next transition? You know, I, I came back. Um, I just said, I'm going to get back into it, but I'm going to find a way to change it. And uh, really the, the, the thing that changed my whole perspective is um, I met a guy who's a big developer up in Missouri in the Northland, North Kansas city, Missouri area. And uh, it's funny, my wife's family knew him. We were sitting together at a Christmas party talking. And uh, he told me his story. And when he was 21 years old, he was getting into real estate. His mom, his dad was a developer. His mom was a very, very successful agent with Remax. And sitting there talking to him, he said, yeah. He said, I always knew I wanted to do real estate. He said, but I discovered very, very early on that I didn't want to go show houses. And I didn't want to compete against you know, the young girls who are out here doing the residential thing. He said, so I needed to find a way to develop a product that brought people to me. And I started thinking about that. And I was like, you know, it makes a lot of sense, you know? So that's kind of what eased me into the development. Um, and really it started out as, hey, like, you know, I had some, some investors that I'd already worked with. And really my investors originally were the guys that owned the ground that I hunted on permission. Oh, wow. Um, so I just said, hey, what if we buy this piece? Let's draw a line down the middle. Let's split it in half, you know, and see what we can do. And it started out from that all the way till, you know, right now I've got, we have 52 residential lots that we're putting in single family subdivision stuff. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that, that seems to, to scale, that scaled up pretty quickly. So what, when did you start that transition? What year was that roughly? It's probably 2000, maybe 17. It's probably been going on for five years now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So how much has that changed in the last five years as well? Cause I mean, obviously uh, real estate has been really interesting, really fun to be in to, to put it short. Yeah, it's different. You know, the, the housing markets in my area has been crazy for a long time. Um, the 2008 to 2013 period, there weren't enough homes built. So development's always been good to us. Um, you know, roll that in with just land prices appreciating at a rapid rate. Um, you know, it's, uh, 
it's been really good to me. But the one thing with doing what I do is when I go in and I buy a track of ground and I split it up, the first time you do it, it's great. But the second property you buy, you, you're your own worst enemy because now everybody around there has seen what you've done. So all you've done is raise the bar for your next purchase. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's been a little difficult, um, you know, on the large lot stuff, but the regular subdivision stuff has been really good, but I stay really local. Like you and I talked about, it's crazy. It sounds, I live in a town of 6,000 people and I don't really go 10 minutes outside my town. Mm-hmm. And that's so. huge. Is there, do you get any flack for, for buying land and making subdivisions? Cause there's some people that are, that have uh, varying opinions on this. I mean, people need a place to live, obviously. And some people want to have a, a nice little lot, but you know, someone listening right now is like this son of a gun. He's the guy that's, you know, we're losing all the habitat and we're building more houses. So what do you say to that guy? Well, so a couple answers to that. The, the first thing that people should know about me first and foremost is I am the biggest land nut that you'll ever meet. Right. Like I appreciate land. Like I'm the guy that like, I have a hard time cutting down a tree. You know what I mean? Like, um, just because I appreciate land in, in the state that it's in. And that's what's always been my passion. The flip side of that is my goal in life is to someday own a full section. Like that's what I want. Right. But my means to the end, unfortunately, is going to be buying other tracks and splitting it up uh-huh. to make enough income to be able to do that. So, you know, it, it may be a little hypocritical, I guess, you know, but that's, uh, that's what I know how to do. Um, I, but, you know, with that being said, I've been in some some city council meetings and county commissioner meetings where the neighbors show up in opposition to some of my projects. And uh, I don't get a lot of support um, ever. I'll tell you that. But I, so I, I've heard lots of opinions from lots of neighbors who, you know, they've lived here for 24 years and they moved to the country and they don't want guys like me to, to come out. And, you know, like the, the most opposition I got, my, we put in a, a five acre lot community. We put in basically it's 10 five acre lots. And the neighborhood across the street was a long cul-de-sac with five acre lots. So it was the same product, but these people have been there. That neighborhood got developed in 1978. Mm. And they, they just hated the fact that we were going to do it across the street. And it went from everything to traffic to the homes are going to be too nice and it's going to increase their property values and raise their tax basis to, I mean, you name it, you know, yeah. Uh, there's everything. Yeah, I, I could imagine. I think people hate change no matter what that is. Um, that's just human human behavior. But uh, I always have to I have to ask because that specific body of real estate uh, does get a lot of flack and, and people. Yeah, I mean, and, and it is what it is. People are going to need places to live. And uh, uh, yeah, that's, it's very interesting. So what have you learned throughout that process, though? Because I think that's a really interesting thing we haven't really talked about here at all of finding an area that is worthy of potential development that can yield some of those higher dollar uh, lots, uh, you know, buildable lots. Well, I I would say the the majority of your viewers probably have the goal of, of having, you know, some sort of home site with, with a larger tract of ground maybe two acres, maybe five acres, maybe 20 acres. Right. Mm -hmm. But like where we're at, that, that doesn't just get created on its own. Um, It takes somebody to go in and do that. Um, so, you know, I just learned that that's something that I could see myself and my family living on. And that's kind of why I, I, you know, ultimately understood that there was a demand for that product, which is why I started doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, you're going to get opposition, but uh, but out of everything I've ever sold, a 10-acre lot or a 20-acre lot, it's like always the easiest sell because mm-hmm. that's what people want. And especially if you're convenient enough to some other city or, or you know, proximity to where people work and where they want to live anyways – then they're going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that, that's what I would say I learned. And second to that, that really that segued my whole strategy in real estate into, you know, being an owner on some of this stuff and, and, uh, you know, investing, what do I know? Yeah. Um, cause I went from positions where, where I was just pooling money from people that I knew and doing the project. And I mean, I didn't have any money at the time. So I was happy to just, like I explained to you, like, okay, we're going to buy this 80. I'm going to split it to eight, 10 acre lots. And then I look at it like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get a nice commission on the front side. Then I'm going to get eight listings. Yep. And that was huge to me, you know? And then I would do that. And I did that a handful of times. And then, man, I started looking at the pro forma that I'm presenting to the investors. And I look at the number at the bottom and I'm like, well, heck, I want to be that guy too, you know? So then I just, you know, just started investing into that stuff. Mm-hmm. Built up to it. So what does your due diligence checklist look like when you're trying to analyze a deal and in a, in a short form manner? So a lot of it's utility based. Um, you know, if it, if it's a su- super rural piece, then making sure that there's water and power available, everything's going to be septic. 
Um, we're finally getting to the position now where we're actually getting high-speed internet south of town. Um, so that's great too, obviously. Those are the main things. Um, I've got a really good relationship with the local county planning office here where I'm at. So I can essentially pick up the, call, the phone and call because um, there's some other things that come into it. If, if you put in so many lots, um, th there's issues with driveway placement and number of accesses. And, and there's a whole list of things you kind of have to check through. Uh, but ultimately, just making sure that when you get it all done, that you're going to get the driveways that you're going to need. The utilities are intact in and you're not going to have to have some astronomical cost. Um, you know, with that being said, we're putting a water line here south of town that's been putting in 3,200 feet of eight inch water line. Mm. Uh, but we were able to buy the piece, um, you know, at a fair enough price that even buying that piece and putting in the water line and selling the lots, it still made sense financially. Mm -hmm. How long are some of these lots sitting on the market when you list them? Oh, not. I mean, demand for that product in our area is so crazy. Really? I mean, but you're talking like a 10 acre lot. So number wise, we're selling 10 acre lots around here for say 200 to 250,000, um, which is a lot of money, right? But but a typical residential lot where I'm at is 100,000. Mm -hmm. To get into, you know, a bigger type lot, it's it's not unusual to be 175. So people look at it and they go, okay, I'm gonna pay 175,000 to have this walkout lot in a neighborhood where I'm, you know, governed by the HOA, you know, or I can just go buy 10 acres for 225 and then I can have my garden and I can have my space and I can shoot a gun, or, you know, let my kids run around side by sides, whatever, you know. So, in, and what are kind of the houses that are going in there? Are those, what price of house are most of these being built uh, on these lots? Um, I mean, everything's expensive. Everything's expensive around here. We we can't build a new house for under five hundred grand right now, just with the the price of things. You know, um, as crazy as that sounds, I mean, there's stuff that's I mean, you know, it's got two commas. You know? uh, I don't know how to explain it. You know, it's all preference, but it's not yeah. because they're limited. You know, um, uh -huh. it's just what people want. It's it's kind of the it's normally it's middle age or or older people and they just want to settle down there and be there you know 40 to yeah. 55 yeah 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 and you know the price of everything right now it's not just the house it's that people put it at the house and then they got to have the outbuilding and you know so then you have a five six hundred thousand dollar house and a hundred thousand dollar building and a two hundred twenty five thousand dollar lot adds up in a hurry yeah do you think that market's really stable where you're at um i mean i think so i think that it's one of the well right now that we don't have a lot of inventory so yeah. that helps on that um, yeah, I, I think I told you before, I think that honestly, COVID as crazy as this sounds that COVID pushed a lot of people, I agree, um, the outskirts, um, and really probably added a lot of demand to that market. Um, you know, now, like I said, we don't have any inventory. We don't have any existing product like that. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't know, but just one last question about this. It, what is the industry there that's driving? Like, what are most of these people doing for work that are buying these types of parcels and building houses? Are they working at the university? Are they? No. So where I'm, I actually live in DeSoto, Kansas. I'm 15 minutes from Lawrence, 15 minutes from Overland Park, 15 minutes from Olathe, 15 minutes from Shawnee. So there's a lot of workforce around us. Our hometown, there's nothing around here. We're just a hub, you know. Um, DeSoto School District is, is highly, highly recognized. It's number two in the in the state. Um, so a lot of people, you know, come here just specifically for that. Um, you know, on the work front. I'm trying to think of the last people that I sold lots to. So the last project I did, one guy was a partner in a civil engineer firm. Um, another guy owned a local business in Olathe. Other guys, uh, an engineer. Um, the other, another guy was a some sort of food rep. He had a, accounts nationally for restaurants and, and food. Other guy was an attorney, and the other guy did pharmaceutical sales. So full, full spectrum there. <laughs> full spectrum. Full spectrum. Yeah. So have you ever walked one of these farms and you're like? man, this, you know, you, this comes across your desk, man, I, I need to walk this. This might be great for a project. And then you realize that, wait a minute, this might be better for, uh, for deer hunting. Cause you, you mentioned you are a deer hunter at heart. So the piece that I just listed, I bought an 80 acre track and we split it into six lots, four tens and two twenties. I was going to keep one of the 20 acre lots for myself. <laughs> That's my problem. Honestly, is every piece I walk, I have a hard time finding something wrong with it. They're just all unique. Yeah. You know? Um, long, so I was going to keep that. And actually one of the lots that I sold while we were going through the replatting process, my son killed his second buck there. Uh, and then the next spring he killed his first turkey there. 
Oh, geez. Um, so there are some advantages to holding this stuff for a little while longer. <laughs> right. Uh, but we we kept the 20 acre lot. We reserved it. Um, we just didn't market it. My wife and I were going to build there. And then truthfully, we built the budget for our house and we put it all together and got to the end and looked at the final number. And my wife said, no way, no way. So we're, we're just, we're very uh, frugal. We, we don't want a bunch of overhead. We don't want a bunch of, you know, a bunch of expenses. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, so we ended up selling it. Dang. Yeah. Well, that, that, uh, every piece I always walk, I always like, man, oh, you can do this, 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 this would be awesome. Oh man, can you imagine this? And like, it's hard to, I just, yeah, I'm, I'm in the same boat where I fall in love with every piece of ground I walk on, uh, which I could definitely see is uh, maybe a disadvantage with what you're doing. But what about, um, when did you end up buying your first recreational parcel too? Cause I guess, did you, have you bought a parcel like this is solely for recreation? This is solely for my enjoyment. And obviously it's a long-term hold, but have you purchased one of those yet? I have. Yeah. So actually it would have been last March. No, maybe where are we at? The March before. So March of 21, I actually closed on my very first piece. Um, it's, it's West of me here, Douglas County, 90 acre track. And what's funny is that I actually went to see that piece as an, as an investment or development deal. Uh-huh. Um, and so <laughs> this, it, it's very unusual where we're at and, and the way this property was marketed, it was listed in the neighboring MLS, not in our MLS. Mm-hmm. So as a broker, I did, I don't have access to the Sunflower MLS. So I didn't actually see it. So I found this track off of like Landwatch and um, n- not just, just full transparency. It was marketed so poorly so poorly, okay. One of the worst marketing part or marketing posts <laughs> yeah. I've ever seen. Okay, uh-huh. like truthfully, right? Um, and I, I got to looking at it, and you know, the pic. There was only three pictures, and the pictures were like the agent was standing in the asphalt road, and he took one picture down the road and one Love picture those. down the road on the street side. Yep, and that's it. So, and it, in the pictures, it looked grass, like mowed grass. But then when you look at the details of it, it's like topography hilly, like uh, you know, terrain, whatever. And then it's like, uh, heavily wooded. And I'm over here scratching my head. Like, this is like a puzzle for me. I'm like, you're saying that it's hilly and wooded, but yet the pictures are of asphalt and looks like a golf course grass. Mm-hmm. So I spent a bunch of time finally I called the guy and he sent me an aerial map. And as soon as I saw an aerial map, I'm like, man, this is dime map. I draw a line down the middle of it. I'll split it. It's going to be perfect. Um, so I hop in my truck and I drove, it's 30 minutes from my house and I drove out there. And as soon as I pulled in, I stopped and I looked at it and I was like, oh my gosh. And, and then I got out and I walked it and it just got better and better and better. And so when I got like, back to the truck, like deer, like deer sign or just potential or, or what, what were you seeing that uh, excited you so much? So my preferred terrain or my preferred area that I like to hunt deer. And it's just because what I know is big timber, steep terrain. Like that's the stuff that's attractive to me. You know, most of my deer I've killed in the timber. Um, so that's all I know, you know? So when I pull up to this piece, just as an example, I pull up, it's, it's 20 acre overgrown hay field with a bunch of reeds and Johnson grass, totally been neglected, right? It's got a Creek that runs through it. But when you're looking at it, there's a huge bluff of timber and it's as far as you can see. Mm. left and right as far as you can see and i pull up the aerial map and i start looking at it and there's not a road for a mile and a quarter behind it okay and it's all timber and then it connects to these big tracks right Mm -hmm. and there's ag on the tracks behind it and uh and i was like man this is this is looking good you know yeah that Um, that's that's an interesting point right there i always get automatically more excited when here in illinois everything is basically one mile by one mile everything's 640s uh and sometimes there's even a dirt road between those Anytime I find a farm that skips that and maybe it's a two by one mile or a two, two mile by two mile always instantly excites me quite a bit more. And I've hunted a lot of those over the years and they're substantially better because usually it's associated with larger tracks. Yeah. And so the other thing that was really attractive on this piece is when I looked at it on Onyx to the south of me is actually a county lake. So there's a huge, it, I don't know how big the lake is, honestly, maybe, maybe 35 acre lake i would say you can boat on it and there's some area that you can even ski a small area but it's kind of like a fishing you know kayak type lake but they own a pretty big track of ground you know and it's got some habitat stuff around it so i'm looking at it going okay i got a little bit of a sanctuary to the south to the north of me is big timber it's back behind me is big timber um so it just started lining up it started checking boxes you know and all of a sudden i went from developer and investor to like man maybe this is the one i actually keep mm-hmm. uh so then I got in the timber and I started walking it. It was just like beat down trails. I mean, this is end of February or March. Perfect time to walk it. 
oh, you know how it looks that time of year too. You can see a long ways. So you're looking through the timber and it's like big rub, big rub, big rub. And there's scrapes and it's just, man, it, it, everything about it. I, I literally, I, I just went in there and I walked it. And I didn't want to leave. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I called my wife and I said, on the way back, I called my wife. I said, you're not going to like this, but. So this you guys family. mentioned your frugal. So how hard of a pitch was that? I mean, how was that? How was that family decision made? It's not. It's business decision. That's why I classify that. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're you're not wrong, which brings up another point of. Uh, so, how did you how did you and your wife discuss that? Because I think this is a conversation a lot of people have, uh, where maybe uh, in more scenarios, the husband's really excited to buy it, and the wife's like, "Okay, how do we justify this crazy purchase, Chase Deer?" Well, so I bought this through a business. Okay, so I have. I have different LLCs set up. So I actually had money in another account from a deal that I had sold, right? So it helps you to start the conversation when you're coming into it with profits from a previously successful. Great point. Profit, right. Yep. Um, my wife is very, very supportive of what I do. Um, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, and I don't know how, because I'll give you a short story. The first piece I ever invested in myself, I saw a track of ground, one acre lot here in Minnesota, and I saw it hit the MLS and I looked at it and I was like, that's too good to be true. And, uh, this is back when one acre lots are probably selling for 60 or 70,000 an acre as a home site. And this piece got listed for $17,500. Instantly. I call the agent, agent answers the phone. He's a you know, hundred years old. And I'm like, Hey, what's the situation of this? And he's like, Oh, these people bought it in 1970. This guy lives south of town an hour, the agent, he's not familiar with the market, whatever. And I'm like, is there anything you know about it? He's like, uh, we've talked to the city and, and I don't think it's buildable because it's 0.96 acres. And in order to have a septic, you have to have one acre. So I'm like, I'm going to go look at it. I'm interested, right? So I go on the way, I call my city building official here who I know. I call him and I go, what is the deal with this lot? He's like, I already told that guy. It's buildable, but because of the size, you can't build some crazy mansion on it because you're not going to have enough room for lateral fields, you know, whatever. He's like, but you can build a good sized house on it. And I said, what about it being, you know, 0.96 or whatever it was? He goes, well, that's inside the right of way. We count to the center of the street. So it's a gross acre. So I don't know why he keeps saying that. He's like, but I had the conversation with him. He just didn't understand it. I go, okay, great. So I pull up, I look at it. This thing is overgrown, brushy. You can't walk two feet in it. You know, the brush is at the road. Yeah. I pulled up on Onyx and I look at the topo and I start, you know, envisioning it. And I go, okay, well, if I clear this, I put a house right here. I'll get a daylight basement. So I call a guy, I go, okay, I'll buy it. You know, so I just wrote up a deal, whatever. He's like, okay. Uh, the next day I get it under contract. Now keep in mind, this is a different time in my life. I literally had $25,000 in my checking account. I wrote an offer for 17,000 and I never asked my wife. Okay. Is, don't, don't recommend this. Okay. <laughs> So the next day, I, I lived in in Shawnee at this time, um, my first house there. My wife and I are coming to Soto for whatever reason. I, we're in the car, and I drive her by. She's not really paying attention. She's never been in this neck of the woods. You know, I pull in this little neighborhood, and I pull up, and here's this overgrown, brushy lot with this rusted-out sign from real estate brokers that's never heard of. I go, what do you think of this piece? She looks up. She's on her phone. She looks up from her phone at She looks at it, like disgusted, like shakes her head. She's like what do you want with this piece of crap? You know? And I looked at her and I go, that's our piece of crap. She thought I was kidding. She's like, no, seriously. And I'm like, no, honey, I'm serious. Oh, it was a, that was a bad dinner with the family that night. Uh, but I penciled it all out for her and she was like, you know what, what am I going to say now? You know? Yeah. We, know we bought that piece for 17,000 bucks. I paid an excavator. I, I pushed all the trees. We burned it, cleaned it up. I overseeded it. Probably had $3,000 in it. So I was in it for 20 grand. And on the, 12 month and one day I listed it and we sold it for 75 grand. Hard to argue that. Man, that was the start of it all. And then I rolled that in another piece, another piece, another piece. And that's kind of what started my, my adventure in this investing process. So what would you tell someone that's wanting to get started? What's one piece of advice people that are just getting started that need to hear? As like a land agent? No, or as somebody as a, wanted to buy, do exactly what you just did. Uh, they're just, you know, looking on the internet, just like everyone else. Yeah. So I, I would say that, you know, if you're really serious about buying something, then, you know, most people already have an area, but if you don't just kind of pick an area and just get so familiar with it that you need to be so familiar that when a listing hits the market, you can look at it and you can tell if it's overpriced, underpriced, like you need to be on it, you know? Um, and then, you know, lean on, on guys like you and I and let us go negotiate on their behalf and try to get them a better deal, you know, mm -hmm. but they need to be able to identify, Hey, this is a good deal right now. This is the piece. You know, I feel like so many people get, 
in the mode where they're just browse their phone, you know, and you can scroll through a hundred listings, but it's just, you know, it's a failure to launch thing. You know, people just, they look at it and then they overthink it. And then by the time they make up their mind, it's gone. And then yeah. it's like repeat, repeat, uh, what do they call it? It's paralysis by analysis. Yeah. That's yep. what we call it. Just, you just analyze it to the point where you do nothing. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's, that's plenty fair. And I think, uh, the, the biggest very like it's just I think it's scary for most people and it's the unknown and also <clears throat> they hadn't done it before so more than likely they don't trust their own gut instinct because like well how do I know that this is like well, how come if it's such a good deal why hasn't someone else bought it already um, all these different things where uh, so what would you say to someone like that like you know if there's all this money out there and people are scooping up all these deals uh, why is this one still available what what am I overlooking or sometimes deals just get overlooked for a long time yeah well so look the one acre piece I bought it when it was on the market for an hour. Mm-hmm. You know, like I literally, it was on a hot sheet on my MLS. It hit, it hit my MLS it, and it hit my email and I just happened to be looking at the time and I went and bought it. Um, flip side of that is my 90 acre piece that I bought. It was on the market 77 days before I bought it. And then I bought it for $30,000 less than what it was listed at. And I think it was listed at $60,000 less than what it was worth mm-hmm. just because it wasn't marketed correctly. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, when I see those pictures on, <laughs> online where they're the the car iphone like they didn't even open their door it's like you can see the wow. rearview mirror in it oh so blurry. I love they didn't even stop the car you know yeah those ones instantly all right where's this actually at look it up and like start the due diligence process from there uh that yeah. is really good advice and uh i've helped people buy those parcels and i think and i've looked at those really hard myself and i would agree that those often are uh not only the pictures are a poor reflection but also uh probably the price yeah, no, it is. It, it's yeah. If if they can't market it correctly, and, and this this is this may be overstepping saying this, but like if you've got somebody who who doesn't see the value in giving you a great marketing package for your property, then obviously they don't understand the value of that property. Does that make sense? Like if they can't even put forth the effort or the or the expense on the real estate in to take great photos, to give a great explanation, to list all the true details of the property, then how do you expect them to price it adequately? Mm-hmm. You know, if they don't see it. If they saw the value in it, they would put more effort into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, yeah, absolutely. I agree 100%. And I think that's what, uh, as a buyer, that's what you should be looking for. Anything else as a buyer that you should be looking for? Obviously, mismarketed properties, um, underpriced properties based off of your own analysis of becoming an expert in an area or talking with an agent that is an expert in the area. Is there any other, yeah. is there any other stories or examples where you found like an oddball deal in a weird way? No, just boots on the ground. I mean, it, it, my recommendation to a buyer would be just, just don't be afraid to go look. Mm-hmm. You know, people line up at our model houses and subdivisions a hundred deep every weekend. You know what I mean? So don't don't like think that it's it's unusual to go walk a piece of ground. You know, if it's listed, you have a right to do it. You know, mm-hmm. um, so boots on the ground. And the other thing I would say is just just buy something. You know, if you're if you have the ability to do it and it feels good and and you like it that day, you know. Don't fall into the analysis by paralysis thing, you know, mm-hmm. or paralysis by analysis. Just don't, because you're never going to buy anything. And one of my mentors told me a long time ago, it's all the way from buying things, all the way to hunting trips. He said, you know, when he was 30 years old, he wanted to go on a bear hunting trip and it was $6,000, you know, for a brown bear. He couldn't afford it. So he's going to wait till he's 32 years old. Well, guess what? Then it's $8,000. Well, then he's going to, now he's got to wait till he's 38. At some point, you just have to draw a line and saying you have to stop the cost. And the only way you can do that is just commit to it. Mm-hmm. it's never going to get any cheaper. Land's never going to get any cheaper. Not making any more of it, as they say, mm-hmm. you know? So find a piece and if you like it and you're comfortable with it and you have the ability to do it, just buy it. Just tie it up. The only way to do it is you got to stop time and that's the only way you can stop the price. Yeah. You have to put your name on it at that point in time. Yeah, uh, and I think uh, there's so many people that say different things in terms of like where the market's at right now. I know a lot of people that are still buying uh, great deals and great opportunities and uh, it's just, I don't know. It's like everyone wants to make some sort of excuse of like, uh, the interest rates are too low, so prices are too high. Okay, well, oh, now the, the interest rates are too high, and it, like, there's pick your battle. Like, it's never going to be absolutely perfect. And then, even if it, well, let's say there is a dip, I still think people will be like, well, it's not, it's not at the bottom yet. I'm not going to buy it yet. You know, it's like, you know, what do you say to those folks, or what, what insight do you have on that? Would you agree? I, I hear it every day, like you, right? I mean, I could get on MLS right now and show you how many transactions closed in my area today. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no way that every one of them was a bad deal. 100%. You know? so every one of those deals that closed, somebody thought it was a good deal or they wouldn't have bought it. 
Mm-hmm. And obviously appraised out everything else. Right. So, I mean, yeah. there, there are deals that, that to some people, right. They just may not, may not fit their, their, you know, what they're looking for. And that's okay. You know, but it, it's the people that run around and talk about them. The, there's no good deals to be had. Like there's deals happen every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the abundance mindset. There's plenty, there's plenty for everyone. Go out there and get it. Uh, you're, I mean, that's what a lot of successful people that I see, like there's plenty of success for everyone out there. There's opportunity everywhere. And, and honestly, the people that normally are the most vocal with there's no deals and everything's overpriced. Those are either one of two people in my experience. One is somebody who doesn't own anything or two, somebody who may own land, but they bought it in 1973. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, hundred percent. So you you ended up buying that parcel, and uh, what was the experience like after buying that? Because it sounded like it was almost instantly you knew that you needed to buy that. Yeah, the, the moment I walked in there, like I said, I I walked in that piece. I never wanted to leave. Like I'm not kidding. I could have stayed there all day. Like you know, and, that, and that's a lot of that's who I am. But the other thing is, like this piece was so attractive to me that I just I, I was fascinated by it. Minute one, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so we put it under contract, got a good deal on it, closed. Um, one of the things that I did whenever I had it in our contract is I put a trail camera out, dumped a couple bags of corn out just to see what was there. Because I, I know nothing about the area. It looks great to me. Um, you know, I know that county-wise, it's a, it's a good county. And, and proximity to, to other things I've hunted, it was good. But this specific track, I knew nothing about it. Um, so I put a camera out there, left it out there for a couple of weeks, went and pulled it. There's a couple of good deer there, nothing crazy. There's a good wide buck that would have been good in a few years. Um, and uh, a lot of the deer had shed, you know, because this is the end of February. So there wasn't a lot to be seen. But there there was one deer, and he looked like a mature deer. And he had big, big pedicles where, you know, broke off, you know. Um, he'd already shed. You see the red spots on there. And I was like, well, that's kind of cool. It looks like an older age buck, you know. Uh, thought nothing about it. We close on it. We kind of put a little shed rally with me and a couple of my buddies. And we go walk it. And the second time we walked it, first time I walked it by myself, first time, it wasn't good conditions. It was sunny and, you know, it's a lot of timber. It's hard to walk that stuff. So we got a good rainy day and a couple of buddies and I went out there and we walk on this, walk upon this shed laying in the timber. And it's like this crazy, it's, it's this. Oh yeah. Huge. For for anyone listening, it's (laughs) very characteristic, uh, very characterful antler. Yeah, it's it's double main beam. It's 88 and a half inch shed. It's the biggest shed I've ever found. And I'm like, man, just the thought that that thing was living, even for even if he's passing through. That was the life. first time you walked it after you bought it? It was the second time I walked it ever. The first time I found two little sheds in the grass, that was the second time I actually shed hunted it. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so I find that shed and I'm like, man, just that something of that size walked through this property. It's unbelievable to me, you know. Um so I was obviously excited about that. And that by seeing that, that kind of pushed me like, okay, time to get in gear. Let's start some projects. Let's get in some plots. Let's get some stuff going. So I put in mineral and plots and did all the typical stuff, you know, what I could. Um, and man, like the end of May, I got a picture of a buck. This buck comes walking in and, you know, they don't have a lot of growth yet, but he comes walking in there and I look. And as soon as I see him, I go, oh my gosh, that's him. And you could tell that he had its double main beam starting. And I had pictures of that buck from May till about the middle of June. And then he disappeared. And I was bummed, you know, because I'm like so excited. Like, I can't wait to see what this deer is going to turn into. Um, and he just disappears. I'm like, well, whatever. It was good while it lasted. You know, maybe I'll find his sheds again, you know. Uh, and I got everything set up to hunt. I hung a couple stands. Wasn't, didn't really do anything too crazy on it. A lot of which is because well, we'll talk about here in a little bit with my son. Mm-hmm. But um, the, the 22nd of October, I got a picture of this deer in broad daylight. I went and checked the camera, got a picture of this deer in broad daylight, hitting a scrape, a whole sequence of photos. And I remember looking at it and I was like, oh my gosh. Like I had never seen anything like it. It's blown away. I'm calling all my buddies and I'm like, remember that shed that I found? I'm like, you're not going to believe this. And uh, so we started speculating what he was going to be. And uh, and I ended up getting a lot of photos of him. And, and ultimately and I, I ended up killing that deer November 13th, the morning of November 13th. And I I had him within 35 yards, November 10th, Ooh. three times oh, in an afternoon, and I couldn't get a shot. One time he was hitting a scrape on a cedar tree. The other time I let him walk away and I grunted him back and he circled and he was trying to get downwind of me. My stand was blown over a bluff and mm-hmm. he was facing me at, at 32 yards. And I wasn't going to take that shot. And then he circled back around and I snort wheezed at him and he stopped and he was just, he was on high alert. So I wasn't going to shoot. Um, then three days later, I killed him in the same spot that I, I had seen him before on the tent. Wow. And 
what was the so emotion? Just, what was the emotions of, of killing that deer? That had to be be so awesome to find the shed. Think he disappears. He shows back up. He's ginormous, and then to to seal the deal. I I can't imagine. Man, so so honestly, my uh, two of my goals in life. Um, number one was to own. This is from a very young age. Number one was to own my own farm, right? Somewhere that I could hunt. I could pass on to my kids, because um, that's very very important to me. Number two was I've always wanted to kill a two hundred inch deer, right? So I shot this buck. That deer ended up green scoring 220 inches. Uh, he's a, yeah, he's a hammer. I've showed you pictures of him. He's back here behind me, actually. Oh, yep. Let's see. But uh, so while it was the best hunting experience of my life to date, right? Honestly, all of that got completely overshadowed by everything else that was going on in my life with my kid. Mm-hmm. So you know, it, it, it's exciting looking back. I've, I've had a lot of time to reflect on it. Um, you know, it's great, but at the time it, it didn't, it didn't have the effect that I thought it would on me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it truthfully, it almost felt like something was taken from me, mm-hmm. you know? So it was, yeah. Hard. And so I think people are probably wondering, well, well, what, what exactly was going on? Uh, you know, you just achieved two of your goal, like lifetime goals and, you know, to feel a little bit empty when you do that, obviously something else going on was, uh, taking a lot of bandwidth of everything. Yeah, so I I have a son who's seven now, Grant, and he's a he's a hunting machine. I mean, the kid has grown up around it. We have pictures when he was 18 months old, um, standing next to deer that we've killed. He's been on blood trails since he could walk. Um, his bedroom has always been decorated. Um, he's got the very first deer I killed when I was 13. That mount has been in his room since we brought him home from the hospital. Um, we found his first shed when he was four years old, like all these things. He's so involved and so invested in it. At, at seven, he's killed three bucks with a crossbow. Seven years old. He killed his first one. He's four years old. Holy cow. Three years old. He shot a, yeah, a little 120 inch eight pointer with a crossbow. Uh-huh. Um, he's, and he's all about it. And we, uh, it was, it was the summer of 2021. He started getting bruises and, uh, this gets hard to talk about sometimes, but, uh, so September 2nd, he ended up getting diagnosed uh, with a, a bone marrow failure disorder. Sorry. No, man, it's it's very real. Yeah. So that that changed that changed us a lot. Changed my life a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know how many details you want me to go into, but basically, we didn't know anything about it. It's a one in you know a couple million disease that he got, um, and it's life threatening. Can be. Um, the only cure, which isn't a guarantee, it's high high probability, but no guarantee, is having a bone marrow transplant, um, which my son, thankfully, thankfully, was able to receive, not without any drama, believe me, but uh, April 19th, he received a bone marrow transplant from a complete stranger. All we know is that it's a 30-year-old woman from the United States. Mm-hmm. That's all we know. And we won't have the ability to meet her, or talk to her, or anything until 12 months after transplant. But... We've learned a lot through this process. Part of Grant's journey was that um, we had another donor lined up and it was a a guy from the UK and he was a perfect match. And finding a perfect match is not easy. And and part of the criteria for being a bone marrow donor, really what they're looking for is they want, in a perfect world, a male under the age of 40. Um, That's the perfect match. And it goes off of HLA and it's a, you know, it's a gene type thing and, and then, they really, they want that. And then, then they, you know, if they can, then it's similar blood type or exact blood type. They have a whole list of criteria, you know, but we had a perfect match and we rolled into that very, very fortunate. We were very, very happy. And, uh, Grant, he, he started his transplant process three times. The first time we got admitted, um, the donor got COVID. So we took a little pause, a little two week pause. Second time he went in, he started chemo because part of the transplant process is he has to go through a chemo regimen to kill all of your bone marrow because there's conditions where if you put new bone marrow in and, and if you don't kill the existing, then there's a conflict and then it causes rejection. So we got in, he started his chemo regiment and we got a call saying that we thought the, the donor was had tested positive for COVID again after he'd already had chemo for one day. This has never been done. So then they said, our team said, we don't really know what to do. Let's think about this. They retested him the next day and he tested negative. But at that point, now we had broken the regiment, and the regiment for this, this you know, treatment is very, very strict. So we said, hey, let's harvest a donor. We're going to, in the UK, we're going to fly the cells over here. We're going to analyze them to make sure there's enough 
quantity of cells to perform the transplant because there's no data supporting what does COVID do to bone marrow? Mm. You know, this is all new to everybody, right? So they harvested him, they flew it over, they analyzed the cells. And uh, I guess I should say at this point, we're in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Because you guys relocated for treatment, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we're in Milwaukee. I shot that buck November 13th. We left November 15th. Me, my wife, and my son, we left our other son behind with her parents. And we went to Milwaukee because we thought, we thought that was the best team for what we were trying to do. Um, so he... Uh, we broke the regiment. We didn't really know. We get the cells. They analyze them. Quantity looks great. We start chemo again to go through the process. We get two days into chemo this time. So now my son's had a total of five different chemo drugs, right? Um, and our doctor comes in one night in a complete panic and says, we just got an email from the bone marrow database telling us there's indications that our donor could be HIV positive. Mm. And that was at six o'clock at night. And by the end of that night, we had the whole team working on it. By the end of that night, we found out that he was HIV positive. Mm-hmm. We had these cells in hand, cryopreserved, and they were gonna, you know, they were gonna go into my kid four days later. Oh my gosh! Yeah. So that caused us to could kind of change lanes. We went into immune suppression therapy and uh, low probability of success, but it's all we had at the time. We didn't have another donor. Now he's got this chemo. Shifted gears, did that. They, they got what they call like a subpar response. Um, we had to wait three months for that. Um, and then we were able to roll in with another donor um, who's a female donor. Uh, but we were able to roll into that transplant. Like I said, it was done April 19th. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, I, I can't imagine. I literally cannot imagine what that would be like uh, in your position. And I don't wish that on anyone. And um, I think what, what it sounds like it has inspired you from what we talked about, you know, earlier this week is to raise awareness of being a bone marrow donor to help folks like, you know, your son or so many other people out there that are relying on, on donors to, for bone marrow. So what is, what are, what are some things that people should know about that, that, that you guys have kind of inadvertently learned? Yeah. So honestly, there, there's just a huge lack of education and lack of um, information as to how important it is. You know, I, my wife and I and my son, we spent 70 days in a pediatric, you know, oncology unit inpatient. Mm-hmm. You know, we slept on a slept on a pullout couch for 45 days straight or whatever, you know. Um, and the amount of kids that their treatment relies on that, um, different cancer treatments, different uh, other hemolytic conditions. Um, you know, there's, there's a ton of things that, that that gets treated with. And unfortunately, the number of registered bone marrow donors um it's just crazy there's so few you know and there's there's other countries like the reason why our first guy came from the uk is it's actually mandatory over there Mm. it's mandatory to register so when you when you go through some of the history and some of the treatments and some of the transplants that take place a lot of the donors come from germany you know europe basically anywhere in that in that area because they make it all mandatory and for whatever reason the united states we don't not only do we not make it mandatory, but we also, we don't really, which, which I'm fine with, right? I'm not saying it should be mandatory, but mm-hmm. we don't even really give people the opportunity to look at it, make a decision on that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, since Grant's been diagnosed, you know, we've done different drives. Um, we paired up with our local school district and they had a, a regional basketball tournament. We did a drive and we've been able to do some really good things. I don't, we've probably put a couple hundred people on the registry, you know? Um, but yeah, it's just crazy. It, it really... For, the, for those of you who don't know, um, it you can get on to bethematch.com, click send me a kit, and they'll they'll mail you an envelope with a, a Q-tip, and you swab your cheek. You put it back in there, and its instructions are, are basic, kindergarten-level instructions, you know, and it's got return postage. And all you have to do, it takes 10 seconds. Swab your cheek, put it in there, send it back, right? And that'll register you. And that's all it is. And, you know, a lot of guys, they look at it, and they go, oh, well, so-and-so, I heard so-and-so had this and they had to drill into their hip and there's all these stories, right? Which um, anymore, a lot of these, a lot of these treatment centers to solve a lot of the, or to, to treat a lot of these illnesses, they do what they call peripheral blood. So they, they don't even need, it's not even an invasive process. It's essentially giving blood. And what they do is anybody that's ever given, you know, plasma or platelets or, or even blood for the most part, they hook you up and they can actually pull the blood out and circulate it and spin the marrow out. Um, Cause you know, it's mm. all in your blood. Anyways. 
So yeah. they give you a, a drug a few days before and it helps release some of it. They can spin it out and they can use that. Mm. Um, you know, worst case scenario, worst case scenario, if you want to be a donor and they request bone marrow, you're going to go in, um, you know, there's going to be some sort of sedation process and they're going to draw the marrow. I've talked to numerous people that have had it and it's like, yeah, my hip was sore for two days, but after that, like, I didn't feel anything. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad that you're able to discuss that. Cause I mean, I'm, I'm ignorant to it too. I mean, uh, one of my good friend's wife donated uh bone marrow and she went through that process yeah. and, uh, she, you know, was felt very rewarded about it and was, you know, she's a nurse by trade. So obviously she knew about that, that, you know, in that field, but, um, I think, yeah, it's, and I, cause that, that was one of the, the first things I thought of like, well, being a bone marrow donor, well, yeah, it, Maybe uncomfortable, but you're helping someone that is in a much, 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 much worse position than than what you would be for a couple of days. Yeah, it's such a small price to pay, and I know that some people are going to think it's easy for me to say, um, given where I'm at, you know, in relation to that statement, I guess. But I, I'm also firsthand. I know the impact of it, you know. Mm -hmm. And like you, I was ignorant to the beginning before. Before my son was diagnosed, I had no idea, you know, mm -hmm. I had no idea about any of it. It was never a concern. It was is never crossed my mind. I'd never even heard of it, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and now, unfortunately, we know more than we would like to, you know, of course. But. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I just hope that, uh, this, this episode at least inspires one person, just one person to, uh, take action in some form or fashion and, and go and, uh, see if there will be, you know, if they're a good match for somebody, um, hopefully just one person. So that's, uh, that's what, that's what my hope is. Uh, I'm probably going to order the kit. I think there's, uh, you know, I'll, I'll lead by example here. So, um, yeah. I think that's really awesome. But I mean, it's uh, to from the perspective of you achieving these, I mean, similar goals. I'd love to kill 200 inch deer. I was able to buy my first piece of ground, but I, I could not imagine that kind of the, you do that. And then it's just like, you have this other thing going on, which I think is really important for people to realize that you and I are deer nuts. So I get it. Like, so sometimes it feels like deer are the most important thing on earth, period that's not right. the case. And sometimes it's something like this, that gives you a new perspective. Um, that's just my, my general thought on that. Is there anything else here that, that we didn't cover that, that you would like to No, kind of on that, on that statement, like you made, what's crazy is, so I shot this deer, right. From the time I saw him to the time I, I killed him. I mean, he's coming down a trail in the timber. So typical, I mean, two minutes, maybe Yeah. Know? comes in, I shot him. Thankfully made a great shot. He piled up 30 yards from the stand. I watched him go down. Right. The deal that I made with my son, though, was that if I killed this deer, then he was going to be the first call. Um, so when I shot him, he was the first call. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he wanted to track him. He wanted to do everything. And then uh, I released that arrow, made that call. And it's just like, I don't know, the whole world. It, it was, I can't even explain it, you know. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I'll never forget. And I'm not ashamed to say it. And I got out of the tree and I freaking cried like a baby uh -huh. all the way to my truck, all the way home, you know, for an hour straight. I was just wiping tears and it was it was su such the, a mixed bag of emotions it was like man I, I felt accomplished but i felt you know almost robbed of an experience like i said because mm -hmm. i was able to achieve the things that i've been dreaming of for 25 years you know um but at the end of the day it didn't matter because you know i knew you know i was leaving and i was going to pack up my family and we were going to go to wisconsin with or without shooting that deer yeah you know I was going to Wisconsin and that's what mattered most to me. And I, I felt very, very appreciative to be able to harvest that buck, be able to go pick up my son, drive him back there, let him pick up the arrow for the first time, mm -hmm. let him pick up that deer's antlers and head for the first time. You know, that's right. Really we cool. recorded it all and the recovery video is awesome. And, and my dad joined me, mm -hmm. um, which is great. And some of our, you know, a couple of my other buddies and, you know, it's really, really cool. And I, I catch myself watching that often, you know, just a recovery video and, um, you know, like I said, with time now, I've learned to, to really sit back and feel more accomplished than, than robbed, you know, um, yeah. just because we're farther in the process with grants and, and in a better spot, you know, um, a lot of the, the unknowns are kind of behind us. Um, so that helps, but yeah, it was great. And, and I told my wife, you know, when I shot this deer, I said, Hey, I said, I, I want to use this deer some way, somehow. I, I think that I can use this deer to get attention and to help do something good for grants condition. People like grant, because in my opinion, as the hunting community, a lot of us are like you and I, right? And I, and I think that true, I truly believe in my heart, there's, there's a lot of good people in the world, more good than bad, especially in the community and our, our little circle that we're in, right? 
And I think that there would be more people that are willing to make the sacrifice, if you want to call it that, you know, of, of doing the bone marrow thing or even getting on the registry and giving somebody else like my son hope, you know? Um, and that's what I tell people, you know, you're giving them, you're giving them a sense of hope, mm -hmm. you know, because I know parents that, that their kids had no matches, you know? I mean, we've mm -hmm. connected with people, this, this disease is so rare that we've connected people all over the world, you know, and we talk, my wife talks to people, talks to other moms and, and, you know, there's other people that, that they don't have it. They don't have a match. They don't have an opportunity at it, you know? And mm -hmm. it's like, I, I couldn't imagine knowing what Hopeless. I went through. Yeah. I couldn't imagine taking my situation. Like if I, if I think back to everything I've gone through and my family's gone through, and if I change that the day of hearing you have a couple matches and replace that with, unfortunately you have no matches, mm -hmm. man, it's like, I couldn't even imagine that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really can't either. I, I truly can't. Um, well, yeah, it's like I said, whole, whole, different, whole different lane in my life, you know, it, it would take us a completely different path. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly. Well, that's where I, I hope that, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of healthy male guys that listen to this episode and this yeah. podcast. And like I said, if it inspires one person, then I think, uh, uh, you know, that that's what really matters at the end of the day. Cause I, I won't even pretend to imagine what it's been like for you. Cause I, I just couldn't, I can't, um, yeah. But no, well, I, I, we got through a lot of good things here today uh, in terms of uh, some topics we haven't discussed, identifying a farm of what is worthy, uh, you know, to pull the trigger on, buy the darn farm if you're able to do it. And sometimes yep. uh, it's easy of us to get really laser focused on this is the only thing that matters. And uh, there, there is more, more things to life that need uh, specific attention. Anything else here? No, man, I just appreciate you having me on and give me the opportunity to kind of tell our story and. Um, you know, like you said, I, I just hope that somebody hears this, sees this, whatever, and they just say, Hey, you know, for, you know, the five minutes that takes me to browse on my phone and order a kit, whatever, you know, that, that they're, they're able to do it. And, um, you know, that's it. I, like I said, we, we have just a, an overwhelming sense of appreciation and we will forever be indebted to, you know, our donor for our son, mm -hmm. you know, because without that, he wouldn't be here. You yeah. Know, that's the truth. Of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, so just as a quick recap, the condition my, ha my son has in a bone marrow failure, essentially what was going on is the bone marrow stopped producing cells. So as a quick education here, um, your bone marrow produces all your, all your cells, your white blood cells, your red blood cells, and you know, your platelets. So my son, when, we, when he got diagnosed, platelet count for an average kids is basically between 150,000 know, per um, to 450,000, right? My sons were at six. Yeah. And that's why he was all bruised up and his hemoglobin dropped down. And, and every week we would go in twice a week and we'd run his CBC and you just watch his counts go, 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 go. And I don't know the exact count. My wife knows all that, but my son's somewhere in the forties or maybe 50 platelet transfusions. Um, and probably in the twenties, maybe 25 red blood cell transfusions where he'd have to sit and, you know, he'd have an IV and they'd have to have to pump and pull cells. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's tough because there's other things that go with that. You know, my son, he contracted a virus through that, you know, um, and it's, it's just hard, you know, it's hard. And there's a lot of kids that, um, you know, they do that and it goes on longer and longer and they're waiting for that donor and they keep recycling the, the list and refreshing and hoping that they have somebody. And, and ultimately what happens is um, the rate of speed where their, where their counts start going just keeps dropping faster and faster and faster. And then, then you start to get iron buildup from all the transfusions Mm. And there's just a lot of things, you know, and it just weighs on you. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, where can people find you if they wanted to reach out? Maybe they have a question or two, uh, about becoming a donor or just want to uh, send some words of encouragement for your family. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. I, I mean, I could give you my email. I, I, I'll let you handle that however you want or how you want to, how you want to give them that. Sure. Yeah. Um, or, or even your, a lot of people do the Instagram handle if, if that. Yeah. Um, so mine's just Heartland Developments, which is my business name. Let me pull it up. I'm not, I'm not the most savvy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, whatever, whatever, uh, whatever works for you. We could do either or, uh, as long as, uh, as long as people could hunt you down. Yeah. Um, I'll let you link it or I'll let you, whatever, whatever you do. Okay. 10, four. Well, uh, CG, I really appreciate you, you sharing your story. Um, look forward to following along here and hopefully, uh, you guys have a good season with all things considered. And, uh, once again, just want to say thank you. Yeah, and thank you once again. I appreciate having the platform and just the opportunity to, to get some exposure and 
and uh, I hope to be able to hunt a little bit this fall. We're still in still in Milwaukee, so we're, uh, sounds like we're going to be there till the spring. But I, I hope to maybe get a couple sits in this fall. I want to say thanks for CJ for sharing his story. And after this conversation, I spoke with my wife, and ironically, she's already. Uh, on the registry to be a bone marrow uh, donor. She signed up about three years ago and I did sign up and I have a kit headed to my house. I think, uh, you know, it's stories like these that can cause some inspiration. And I encourage anyone out there, if they're on the fence to uh, strongly consider it and think of folks like CJ and his family uh, and his son Grant and how you could potentially um, help them save their life. And uh, I think that's really powerful. So. That's it for now. We're going to have some great guests here in the next couple of weeks. <clears throat> We're probably going to do one on just a market update as well as we get rolling through seasons, uh, lining up schedules. Uh, some, sometimes can be a little bit challenging this time of year, but we still have some really great conversations coming down the pipeline. And as always, have a great rest of your week. Until next time, see you.